0: time together those services he made note of the opportunity that's ours this close of the lord's day this first day of the week and indeed how blessed we are to have this privilege to meet yet again not only as brothers and sisters in christ but also as those of greatest desire to offer the sincerest thanks and appreciation of our heart in worship and in reverence and in devotion to the very god who has made it all possible and the one who we look forward to being with forevermore And tonight as we come to yet another lesson in our series of studies in the book of Exodus, we come to the fourth of that particular set of series of lessons. Our desire as we began that series was to study the book along with our Bible Bowl participants to learn from the book just as they are doing, as they are so diligently and studiously looking at questions and learning in their classes and in homes and other places. You and I are studying along with them as we complete puzzles, as we look at some of the lessons to be seen in these chapters of this second book of the Old Testament. As we've noted, the particular section from chapters 1 through 24, excluding chapter 6, is the section that our youngsters are studying, and you and I to this point have already covered chapters 1 through chapter 7, verse 13 in our studies on Sunday evenings. Tonight we'll pick up verse 14 of that chapter and complete chapter 9 as we look at the next set of events and scenes that are so tantalizing in this book of Exodus. Of course, many of the things tonight will be a bit on the familiar side as we look at some of the plagues that God brought upon the Egyptians, and of course, the Israelites also learned an amazing set of lessons. We shall, in fact, look at a few of those things tonight as we ask, what might you and I learn still today about what occurred to them, and how might we implement those in our lives to help us be better servants to the Master today? We'll approach the lesson as we have the three previous, looking first at the historical record, attempting to cement that a little bit better in our mind and then to use the latter part of the lesson and look at some of the applications and lessons, if you will, that can benefit us this day and time. As we do that, first of all, we'll begin, as we have before, looking at some of the actual historical record. And I've tried to summarize that in all the entirety of those chapters on this one slide. As you begin to look from the top and read down with me, we come to the point of realizing the placement in which we now are. When Moses and Aaron left, of course, the place where they were at first, we remember at the burning bush, God had commissioned Moses to go and lead or bring my people out of Egypt. And though at first he was reluctant, and though he was a bit hesitant, he finally went. Aaron was sent to be the spokesman along with him, or his prophet, if you please. And as we come to the placement of chapter 7, verse 14, we remember that Moses has with courage and bravery gone in before the Pharaoh and he has in fact had Aaron to cast that rod down and it did become a serpent just as God had said it would. It did swallow up those serpents or the other things that had been made from the rods of the Egyptian sorcerers and magicians. And that's where we closed our study last time. Now we might ask what proceeded to occur after seeing that great event where Aaron's rod swallowed theirs. How next did the Pharaoh react and respond? And how did Moses and Aaron carry out the plan and commissioning of God? In some ways, that's where this particular slide begins. God had previously forewarned Moses. Moses will have a heart that's hardened. He will not in fact respond in evidence to that which he has seen accomplished by you and Aaron. And in fact, he will rebel against my commands and my demands. And as a result, I will bring my wonders and my signs upon him and upon the nation of Egypt. God had already told Moses that. And so when Moses appears before him, and indeed he does rebel, perhaps that wasn't a great surprise to Moses. In fact, you'll begin to notice that with the very mention of that rebellion, we next find, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 7, that the plagues are now mentioned. And one by one, they are brought upon the nation. You'll appreciate with me, first of all, there is the water turned into blood. And as vital as the Nile River was to the nation of Egypt, without it, she would just be one of the other desert nations of that part of the world, like Libya or Sudan or Chad or one of those other nations mentioned there in the northern part of Africa. But because the Nile River flows through her territory, Egypt has a part that is exceedingly fertile and is able, in fact, to grow crops and sustain itself unlike so many of those other nations. And yet, with this opening plague, God gave the order through, in fact, the nature of Moses and Aaron that the waters would be turned into blood, and it would last for seven days. The people came to appreciate rather quickly the fish and the water died. The land began to stink. It must have been a ferocious and terrible smell. The people began to dig beside the river in search of that all-important water. And we find, of course, as that water had been turned into blood, not only the actual water in the river, but even water in stone pots that they had already gotten also was turned into blood. This was an amazing miracle to be sure. As you can really imagine, some of the notes there to be seen. Not only was this a great physical lesson for the Pharaoh and the other peoples of Egypt, as well as the people of Israel too, But there was also the clear recognition that the various gods of the Egyptians were directly in front of these as being attacked. The god Hapi, the god of the Nile. This was a god to which the Egyptians looked upon obviously with great favor because again, supposedly this god allowed them to enjoy the fruitfulness of the Nile River. And because of that, they were not a desert area like others. However, this God was powerless to turn that blood back to water. This God had no capability at all because she did not exist. This God, goddess Hapi, you'll notice again, was directly attacked by the turning of the water to blood. But notice, also the reality of this, the Pharaoh didn't bend. He did not, in fact, suddenly agree to allow the people to leave. And so the second plague rather quickly comes upon the land. You'll notice it involved the frogs. This too was a direct attack upon one of the gods to which the Egyptians looked and turned, one of the gods that they gave great admonishment to. This was the god Hecht. This was the goddess of fertility. That is to say, one that made possible reproduction and one that allowed a growth in terms of population and peoples. And yet to this goddess, who by the way was shaped with the head of a frog, was directly attacked. Because notice, here was an instance where these frogs were so great in number that they became not only a nuisance, they became a great problem. But interestingly enough, this goddess Hecht was powerless to remove the frogs. They were not removed until Moses, with the power of God, made the decree that they would leave. Then and only then, again, we find the people piled them in the heaps and the land stank because of it. We learn again that God is great and powerful and many lessons, no doubt, were taught by virtue of first the water to blood. And then this occurrence of so many frogs. But yet again, the Pharaoh did not submit his will to that of God's decree. And in his rebellion, a third plague seemingly came rather quickly. As you can see, this third plague involved lice. As dust was cast upward by Moses, it became lice. That was a great, not only annoyance, but a great affliction upon the people. And as you can see, it too was an attack on one or more of the Egyptian gods. There was a great number of gods to which they turned their attention. Some Egyptologists have estimated the number to be upwards of a hundred. And yet, we notice that a few of the major ones were directly attacked by these plagues. And in the third place, we find the god Osiris, the god of agriculture, as well as Geb, notice the god of both earth and soil. If it's the case that the source of this lies was ultimately what, of course, the Scripture says it was, you might have thought that Geb would be able to reverse it or at least diminish it, but Geb could not. In fact, it was rather quickly learned by the sorcerers and Egyptians in Egypt that no matter which god to which they turned, they were unable to reduce or remove these plagues. It was only when Moses, through the power of God, affirmed they would leave that, in fact, they did so. Here we find that Geb, just like Osiris, just like Hapi, just like Hecht, all of them not only were not existent but that lesson was to be drilled into the mind of the people of Israel, of course, but also the Egyptians were to understand that as well. The third plague came and went. And as the two previous to it, the Pharaoh did not submit still to God's decree. And we find the fourth plague also rather quickly arrives. You'll notice in it the plague of the flies. As you and I ponder and think a bit about the character of those flies, the descriptions, though they are certainly few, seem to be descriptive of a kind of fly that's very different than the common house fly with which you and I are familiar today you and I know this common black-looking housefly can be a bit annoying, but it doesn't ever seem to cause too much hurtfulness or pain. But I might invite you to think for a moment about some of the flies that we see on cattle that are grazing out in the field. Sometimes those flies can not only be irritating to cattle or horses or other such animals, we might well call them those kind of horse flies or sometimes dog flies and their bite is painful. So much so it can really be rather irritating. It can even make one sick. It would appear from the description that is the kind of fly that was brought in great multitudes and hosts upon the nation here before us in Exodus. As you can see, it was an attack upon the God keeper. And that of course was the God of beetles and flies. And isn't it amazing that no doubt as the people earnestly approached and prayed to this God, nothing happened in terms of of the flies leaving for that God, of course, was unable to do anything about it. That God, you see, didn't exist. As you notice with the coming of that fourth plague, we readily now begin to see the great power of God unleashed upon the nation of Egypt. Unleashed in such a way that they would appreciate that their Pharaoh could not bring these things to leave it was only when Moses gave the statement and gave the decree that they in fact departed plague number five we also find that in the text before us tonight after the first four we have seen a number of animals used in these various plagues now we find a pestilence or rain brought upon the cattle and various other kinds of animals the particular animals mentioned would have included what you and i recognize as cattle but several other varieties as well and as we notice the god or god is attacked isn't it interesting that the god of memphis was in fact recognized as the sacred bull apis or ta p-t-a-h And yet again, as the people throughout Egypt gave great honor to this God, and yet he was unable to do anything to protect the animals that were so afflicted by this pestilence in the rain. And in that affliction, notice how many of them in the text died. No doubt, a great difficulty was brought upon the Egyptian economy and the Egyptian food preservation by virtue of the loss of all of these cattle by virtue of the rain. (laughs) One more time, Pharaoh, though, did not submit, and neither did those who were his counselors advise him to do so. No wonder, then, plague number six stands directly before us. Now, we come to one that directly attacks, of course, human beings as well as animals. Boils, breaking forth with blames upon man and beast. And we find in the occurrence of these boils, that, of course, the skin would be a very disgusting kind of situation as it would burst forth with these putrid sores. And remember, as those ashes were cast into the air by Moses and Aaron, and it became these boils that burst forth with brains upon human beings as well as animals, what a great issue this was, illustrating the power and majesty and might of God and how it ought to have brought them to realize the power behind it. But yet one more time, not only was the Pharaoh, not only were his magicians, but yet all others too were afflicted by these, with the exception, of course, of the Israelites. They were preserved, protected, and safeguarded from them. And amazingly enough, you can still notice that this was an attack upon at least one, if not more, of the various gods in Egypt. First of all, we might mention Imhotep, the physician god, the one who you would have thought would have been able to heal and provide healing, but he wasn't able to do it. Furthermore, we could mention Thoth and Isis, gods of both magic and healing. As you give consideration to all of them, we have have opportunity to note again the powerlessness that they had in terms of protecting, removing, and helping their people in any way that brings us to the last one in the lesson text for tonight plague number seven after the first six with Pharaoh still in open rebellion to the word of God with Pharaoh in fact still desires to acclaim himself as a deity and as a God he was unwilling to submit himself to this other Jehovah God and one by one these plagues have attempted to embed in his mind the reality of who was supreme and it wasn't him And on this occasion, we now come to the hail. We see quickly how devastating the plague of hail would be when all the trees and the crops were in fact destroyed as these large pelting nuggets of hail fell from the sky, ground to pieces the elements of the crops that were thus in the time of harvest and in the time of their growth. And so it was, as chapter 9 draws to its conclusion, that's what's described. And this too is an attack on one of the most preeminent of the Egyptian gods, the goddess Nut, the sky goddess. Quite often she was portrayed as, in fact, her back arched as, in fact, the sky. They thought the sky was the archment of this goddess's back. And isn't it significant still that that goddess's back provided no protection from the hail? Though they pleaded and prayed for the hail to be removed, it was not done until the God of heaven decreed it so. In those seven plagues, we're well aware the next chapters are going to bring us three more. And as we study them, we shall learn some valiant lessons, but for our study tonight... Let's revisit and think a bit about these that we have seen and extract in briefness just a few lessons that can be helpful to us as we strive to live day by day committed and devoted to the Master whom we serve. Our first lesson for the evening has to do, of course, with God's control of nature. It is interesting to think about the lessons that were supposed to have been learned by the Egyptians and by Pharaoh, and at the same time lessons that God's own people ought never to have forgotten once embedded in their own minds as well. First of all, might we make use of a few of these plagues all at once? God's control of nature. We are aware as we open the sacred pages of the Word of God that there are times that God does extraordinary things, like when he made the sun stand still in Joshua chapter 10. That was an occasion indeed truly amazing to even consider when the sun stood still for an entire day. But notice that God's control of the universe and all things in it, including earth and all of its cycles and all the things pertaining to it, leads us to see in these plagues that God here was able to use what one might have thought was ordinary things, and yet God used them to make plagues. Consider frogs. We each are aware of frogs. Perhaps in the summer months like this, we hear them often. We even see them crawling on our houses, those tree frogs. As we drive aside the roadway on a rainy night, we see them hop across. We perhaps don't give much thought to them. But suppose we give some thought to God suddenly increasing by a factor of a million the number of frogs in a square mile. Suddenly then that number of frogs would be great and mighty and be far more than just an annoyance or a nuisance. As it was in the case of the Egyptians, they'd be in our bedrooms, our kitchens, our houses, our tomb sheds, they'd be in your plate dish as you tried to eat supper, they'd be everywhere. That's what God did with these frogs. But consider the flies. We too are aware of the occurrence of flies, but what if God were to increase by a factor of a million the number of flies in a square mile? Suddenly, that number of flies would become far more than just an annoyance. These matters simply illustrate to us the control that God has even over the ordinary things in life. Frogs, flies, the occurrence of the thing we recognize as hail all of that is completely and absolutely beneath the control of our Heavenly Father. Consider with me some thoughts that amplify that thinking. While here upon earth, Jesus exemplified that kind of control, didn't he? When you and I think about the nature of death, we see that as a natural, expected part of life. For God, after the fall in the Garden of Eden, it was not his will that we would remain here in the flesh perpetually. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment, we read Hebrews 9.27. Jesus, for instance, in John 11, simply needed to say, Lazarus, come forth. And he did. His spirit returned from the Hadean world, re-inhabited that body, and Lazarus was alive again. Jesus illustrated complete and dynamic control over all that would be seen as the ordinary parts of life. In Mark 4, beginning in verse 35, our Savior was asleep on a pillow in a ship when a mighty storm arose in the Sea of Galilee. We are aware, aren't we, of a summer storm. It seems this time of the year we at least have two or three a week. And yet you'll notice if you were on a boat in the midst of the Sea of Galilee... If that boat wasn't very large, it would begin to toss and turn with the waves, and those disciples were fearful for their lives. Carest thou not that we perish? The exact words they stated to our Savior. Jesus merely arose and said, Peace be still. Three little words, and the storm immediately left. You see, our God has complete control over all the features and aspects of the ordinary parts of of our world, And might it not be in that way that we should be so thankful for the kind of regularness in the cycles of God's creation. Humanity is able to bumble and make messes of almost everything he touches. Give a person almost any opportunity and long enough and he will mess up what it is that's placed before him. For haven't we often noted that the way of man is not in himself? And yet we notice that the earth has been in its continuance now for around 6,000 years or more. And it still turns on its axis once a day. It still circles the sun once a year. We still see the cycles of summer and winter continuing their patterns. And it has ever been so since the dawn of time. It's because God made it. And it's because He's in control of it. If any scientist were given control of it, the earth would have long since been destroyed. For man, though he thinks himself wise and he thinks himself smart, he often is the height of folly and foolishness in what he attempts to do. Notice some passages that challenge us on matters like these. In Genesis 8.22, in the long ago, we recall after the great flood of Noah's day, therein it was said, while the earth remainest, Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. That was God's affirmation. And today it continues to be this way. Notice also in Acts fourteen seventeen, a lovely and challenging passage in which we find that Paul preached on that first missionary journey and very frankly said that it is God who gives us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons whereby we may thank God with joy and gladness. As often as we're mindful of the refreshing rain, it doesn't come by scientific happenstance or accident. It comes as the cycles of the things put in place by God continue onward. And it is He who makes these things for us and gives them to us, as it is His will to do so. You'll notice furthermore in Psalm 104, beginning in verse 8, a somewhat lengthy reading. We not, will not read all of the remainder of that chapter, but I would like to read just a few of the verses, extolling and praising God's control over this natural world in which we live. Let me begin in verse 9. "...Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over." that they turn not again to cover the earth. A reminiscence of the boundary, namely the sand, that God has placed at the borders of the oceans and bodies of water. That's God's natural boundary. Verse 10, He sendeth the springs into the valleys which run among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild asses quench their thirst. By them shall the fowls of the heaven have their habitation, which sing among the branches. He watereth the hills with from the chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of thy works. Speaking of God, He causeth the grass to grow for the cattle and the herb for the service of man, that He may bring forth food out of the earth. We'll simply pause there to note, whether it be the cattle of the field, the birds of the air, or the refreshing water that flows, who was it that provided it? In every instance, it was God. And thus, he remains in complete control even over the extraordinary and the ordinary ways described upon this earth. But perhaps a second lesson. In addition to these plagues reminding us of this, we learn also something great about Pharaoh's response to these plagues. In each instance, as we noted earlier, We noted that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he rebelled against God's commission and commandment. He refused to submit and to allow God's people to go and leave. Throughout the era of time, many have wondered about this hardening of Pharaoh's heart, and some have even made use of this passage as a direct statement to blaspheme God, namely that he purposefully hardened Pharaoh's heart and then punished him for having a hard heart. Now that would be an unfair God who, using his infinite power, calls someone to do something and then he turns around and punishes them for doing that. Thus, might we give a few moments' reflection on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Might I ask you to consider these ideas. As the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is mentioned, there are several of the verses in Exodus that state that it was due to Pharaoh hardening his own heart. There are other verses in Exodus that assert that God hardened his heart, and there are a third group or classification in which it simply is said that his heart was hardened, without making mention who was the hardening agent. Thus, which is it? Did Pharaoh harden his heart? Did God harden the heart of Pharaoh? Or was it by some other means and mechanism? It would be good for us at this point to notice the following premise or principle. I have stated it, and upon stating it, then we will look at some verses or passages that give us examples of its usefulness. The premise reads as follows. It was not that unusual in ancient Greek and Hebrew, especially with their employment of various verb types, for the following to be true. Namely, that those active verbs were sometimes used to express not the actual doing of the thing, but rather the permission granted by one in the allowance of those things to be done. In other words, the verb itself referred to someone allowing it to happen rather than affirming directly the thing as it occurred. If we give some thought to that idea might I ask us to notice that more than once the scriptures actually use that type of verb employment. Consider these examples. And in each instance, we'll try to highlight the concept that we're asserting before us. First of all, in Jeremiah 4 verse 10, God in the verse previous to this one had expressly said that there was to be deceit in the people of Israel. That is to say, the people had fallen into deception they were deceived. And then in the very next verse, it was Jeremiah who declared, Oh, Lord God, thou hast to greatly deceived this people in Jerusalem. Now, what do you and I make of a statement like that? That God purposefully greatly deceived the ancient nation of Israel. That sounds a bit troubling, doesn't it? That God deceived them? That is to say, he misled them, he beguiled them, he deceived them. He led them into a pathway that was not good for them. We understand many more clearly what that means. It is not that God purposefully and directly deceived them. He allowed them to make their choices. The situation was put before them. God sent them prophets, but God didn't make them obey the prophets. The people had their own option, their own mind, and their own capability to choose. And by the employment of that verb in that case, God allowed them to make their own choice. They chose to walk the way of deception. And because of that, God did punish them. He punished them because they would rejected Him. But consider yet another one in the very next set of major prophets. In Ezekiel 14.9, one more time, this time deception is mentioned. And again, it is said to be due to God. God you have deceived the prophets. Question: Did God deceive purposefully by his misleading the prophets of ancient Israel? That is to say, did he implant in them words whereby upon their preaching they would mislead God's people? The prophet said so. What does that mean? Same employment of that ancient Hebrew verb form. It means that those prophets were beneath the control and character of their disposition to proclaim God's word. They could choose to proclaim the false doctrine. Thankfully, few of them that we have record of in the Old Testament made that choice. Some of them, however, do with like Hananiah in Jeremiah 26. Here was a man who directly stood before the people, shoulder to shoulder, as it were, with Jeremiah, but yet Hananiah was a false prophet. He told the people that which was not true. The people, however, liked what he had to say, and they gave him more honor than they gave Jeremiah. At one point, Jeremiah made the following statement. Hananiah, this year you shall die. Seven months later, Hananiah was buried dead. Which prophet was the true one? Was it the one that said what the people wanted to hear, or was it the one who with sternness and courage with boldness would proclaim what God had given him to speak? And of course, it was the latter, wasn't it? But notice again that same verb form with the idea of deception is used, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Notice in Isaiah forty-five seven, there God said, "I create evil." Now what sense do you and I make of that statement that God, our beloved Jehovah God of heaven, would create evil and that which is bad? We read in Genesis 2, of course, and 3, that it was the tempter who came before Eve and she and Adam chose to disobey God. God, you see, didn't create evil and he still doesn't, but he allows humanity to be tempted. He allows us to make our choices. He has given us his word, but he allows us in foolishness to not follow it. We can, you see, make our own decision. That's what God meant there when he said, I create evil. He allows you to be to bring evil about because he allows us to choose our own way notice furthermore in Ezekiel 20.25, 20, on this occasion, we have perhaps one of the most startling statements of the Old Testament. Listen to the startling character as God says, I, personal pronoun, I gave them statutes which were not good, and I gave them judgments which in fact were bad. Now Really? the great loving God of heaven would give to His creatures statutes that were not good? Well, of course, now we understand what that means. God's statutes as He delivered them to His Holy Spirit were always tremendous and positive and exactly righteous. Psalm 119, verse 172. When He says there that He gave them statutes that were not good, He allowed the human family in their knowledge to disobey His will and make their own rules and regulations just like Israel so often did. They gave their attention to various gods and goddesses and even bowed down to them. That was all wrong. That's what God meant when He allowed them to make their decision. Notice that God gave the permission for us to make our own decision, but it is attached by that usage of the Word to God Himself we thus must read those verb usages carefully and see in it that which, of course, is truly involved. Perhaps one New Testament example will illustrate the same. In Second Thessalonians 2.11, we find on this occasion in the heart of the New Testament, even a Greek verb is used in this way, where there it says, God shall send them strong delusion that they might be damned that too is a shocking statement, isn't it? The God of heaven would send them strong delusion, that is to say, he'd send them things that mislead them and deceive them so that he can condemn them. That would not be a God of love, and it is not a God of love. Our God doesn't behave in that way. Again, what that means is, as Paul described that man of sin in that chapter, he described that the human family would have the opportunity to make using the Word of God their decision as to whether to follow that man of sin or not. And those who chose to follow him because of their sinful ways, God will condemn them. But notice, it's not because he forced them to act that way. God gave them their choice, and they chose to follow the ways of deception and the ways of sinfulness. Thus, our second lesson for tonight simply is this. We are agents capable of choosing. We can choose to follow the way of good, or we can choose to follow the way of evil. And we appreciate that there are great rewards for the former, and there are great penalties for the latter. We must be ready to accept the consequences if we choose the latter, for they certainly will come. Perhaps finally in our lesson tonight, one last thing that we can take with us to help us from our study of these plagues... And this is the one that formed the title of the lesson tonight. Taken from chapter 8, verse 23. It, when it came to that particular point, God said, I will put division between my people and the, and the others. God said, there's a very special distinction between those who are mine and everybody else. Today, I would submit to you by the teaching of the New Testament that there is still a continental divide between those who are God's and those who are not. I understand, and we each do, that the world tries to cloud that distinction. How often have perhaps we heard individuals say, we are all going to the same place. We're just going to get there a little bit different ways. And the idea, of course, behind that is that all of us are God's people. But it just simply isn't so. Just as surely as God had His people in the Old Testament Israel, you notice those plagues like the hail and the locusts and like the grain of beasts and the flies, they wouldn't seem to fly amongst God's people. His people were distinct, they were protected, they were secure, and they were identified as His. That wasn't true of the others. And today, God still has a people And that division that separates his people from the others is a magnificent one. In fact, it is a great division. And it's not just simply the fact that one class has gotten wet. Oh, it's true. One class has been baptized for the remission of their sins. But look at what else describes that group of people that belong to God. Some of the differences that might well be noted are these. Just as surely as there is a people of God's possession today, and that thought is presented in Titus 2.14, it is there specifically affirmed that we are a people of God's own possession. That means He owns us. We belong to Him. We have been purchased for that organization, and we are a part of that reality. We're His people. Thus, we don't belong to those in the world our type of life is different than theirs. Whereas they walk in darkness, we walk in light. Whereas they have a heavenly fa- do not have a heavenly Father that they admire and honor, we do. Whereas they choose to follow other things in life that have nothing to do with forgiveness, we understand the need for forgiveness and rely day by day upon it. Just a few of the passages that might come to our mind. Ephesians two ten, we are His workmanship. Notice, Paul didn't say everybody is His workmanship. He said we are. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That describes you and me as Christians. Us, you and I, who have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, and who now walk in newness of life. Romans six verses three and four who in the words of Colossians 2 verses 12 and 13 are such that that old man has been put away upon its death. The realization of that thought challenges us to notice we're members of a kingdom. They are not members of that same kingdom. They're in Satan's kingdom. We're in God's kingdom. We understand the head of that kingdom to be Christ. They, of course, have not yet appreciated the thoroughness by obedience of that thought. And as you close that, consider the attribute of prayer that we enjoy that they don't have. You see, those who are not in the kingdom, those who are not God's people, nowhere, as I read the Bible, are they ever promised an attribute and the privilege of prayer. There's not a promise that God will hear them, John 9, 31. There is not that attribute given. But you and I have it may I ask each of us to think about how special it is to be then in God's possession of people. There is a division between us and them. I understand again how the world would like to cloud that and try to make it sound as if all are in his possession, but all are not. It's true that all should be. It's true that he would desire that none would be lost, Second like Peter 3, 9, but we still know that we each can choose for ourselves. It is in that way that we recognize the fullness and the reward and the beauty of this thought will be found and seen in the life following this one. For those in God's kingdom, those possessed by Him, have a, perhaps a place that is beyond our ability to describe, to inhabit. And we look forward to that. It is that place in the Hadean realm called paradise, where in fact there is no torment or anguish. There is bliss and peace. But again, not everybody's going to be there. For there is another place of torment where the rich man found himself in Luke 16. May we suggest this very night that this division between peoples is significant. May we ever appreciate that it truly is a dr- dramatic division, and may we strive to always be on the right side of that division. In summary tonight, as we draw our lesson to its conclusion, We have seen seven of the plagues before us appear one by one as God illustrated his greatness. And as we've looked at each of these and the way that it was brought upon the people of Egypt, we notice that we've learned three great lessons. First of all, we have seen that God's in complete control even of the ordinary day-to-day activities in nature. Secondly, we've also seen rather amazingly that the Hebrew words and Greek ones as well recognize that Pharaoh's hardened heart was his choice. God did not force his heart to be hardened. He made that choice himself. And today, you and I choose whether to obey or whether to not. Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 and 16. And finally, our last lesson of the evening. We've also learned in dramatic character the beauty and the power that associates to that division that exists between God's people and the other people of the world. Tonight, are you in God's people? Are you numbered amongst that category? If you are, then you know what a tremendous change that has taken place in your life. But if you aren't a part of that number, don't delay, don't procrastinate, don't wait for a better day, for a better day will not come. If we could be of assistance tonight, to you to become a child of God. Let your heart be touched with what the Savior did for you and come in humility and in eagerness and obey the precious gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to believe with all your heart Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess in an audible way the fact He is the Lord of your life and Son of God and be immersed, covered, baptized, buried in water for the remission of your sins. If we could do that, we'd be honored to be a part of assistance. If you have become a Christian but no longer are faithful, don't remain in that state of faithlessness for you're lost in that current state, but come back to your first love. And if we could do assistance by way of prayer, for strength, or for forgiveness of sin, let us know in what way we could help if you would while together we stand and while we sing.